In some cultures, animals such as dogs and cats are kept as pets, whilst in others they're cooked for meat. Westerners might revolt at the idea of their pet dog being cooked for dinner, while in these other cultures it would be perfectly acceptable. It seems like moral values and principles are predicated largely on the environment we're brought up in. Does this then mean all our moral propositions are completely made up by human beings, and aren't actually indicators of some greater moral reality? Well, some philosophers think so, and in this episode I talk to Professor of Philosophy and Moral Anti-Realist Don Loeb about just that. As always, if you enjoy the episode, be sure to subscribe to more, and you can also find more at the YouTube channel Digital Gnosis. What, and these questions about morality as well all kind of tie into that and so mm -hmm. i kind of i'd love to be able to go down that avenue somehow um, you have to go into it um with the attitude that it might not work but it's a darn good way to spend the next five years of your life right you know yeah um that's what i did i was a lawyer before philosopher right. i never practiced but i went to law school and yeah. i just didn't think i'd get a job but i i was having a blast and so and actually, when I stopped worrying about trying to get a job, that's when I started doing better. Right. I stopped thinking about what everybody thought of me, and I just started doing philosophy. Yeah. And in fact, when I went out on the market, I had no idea whether my teachers liked me. <laughs> Graduate school. In, in some ways, it's wonderful. In other ways, it sucks. Yeah. Well, I, I applied for... Um, I actually did an essay on whether... It, it was for, um, you know, the University of St. Andrews in the UK. Mm -hmm. um, of course, best. So they, they've got um, a scholarship for their theology degrees, which I um, entered that with an essay on whether the moral argument was any good for the existence of God. Um, and yeah. I'm waiting to see if I've got the scholarship from that. Well, um, did you get it right or not? <laughs> I mean, I was kind of, I rather than putting my opinions out there, it was more kind of, summarizing yep. everything that there is out there and you know more than anything i wanted to be like look i you know i know how to do logic i i've read this i've read this because it was only 1500 words and yeah you know that my essays for graduate school were six page papers or two six page papers i wrote as undergrad Right. One in one of them, I argued that Descartes was arguing in a circle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And in another, I argued that Hume was inconsistent when he advised people to go play billiards and remind themselves about cause and effect. Because okay. by his lights, he had no reason to believe that. <laughs> so why wasn't he just a skeptic? Why didn't he just stop? Yeah, I've, I've they still... They were pretty naive, I, but they were clear, you know? Yeah, yeah. I'm still probably around that in, in loads of my views. Like, like I, I keep changing almost month to month on whether I think like, uh, you know, one month metaphysics is good. One month, uh, Parmenides has got some really cool arguments. The mm -hmm. next month I'm, I'm with Hume and I'm like, uh, or I'm, I'm with all the logical positivists. And, I'm gonna, and well, um, everybody I'm thinks they're wrong, but they're great. Um, and Ayer is definitely, I mean, that's one of the best books I've ever read. Even if it's wrong, it's written like it was written by a graduate student, which it kind of was. And he's just right. so confident in his views. Um, it's a style of writing. Russell was that way as well, I guess. Yeah. Um, on the moral argument, I, just, I guess I just think that you don't prove the existence of something controversial by relying on something that's just as controversial or almost as controversial, I guess. Yeah. And furthermore, given Euthyphro style worries, I don't see how God's existence really saves morale, moral realism. I mean, without God, there couldn't be morality, but there is morality, so there's God. But how would God make make the case that morality uh, makes sense? How 
because you know if God's a Nazi, then there's no reason to pay any attention to God, and you can't say that God wouldn't be a Nazi because God's good, because then you're suggesting that there's a standard outside of God, in which case we didn't need God for the right, right. premise in the argument. Well, well, I suppose we can we can come into some of these um, finer points in a bit, but for, first, just for people, because a lot of the people who are kind of listening and following have recently started thinking about, um, and, and a lot of people have come from like a kind of naturalist position as well, and they're thinking, well, what is this topic of ethics? Um, why is it important to think about at all? Um, and, and what does it what does it even mean to like to use these terms like morality and and so forth? Um, we, do you want to give like an overview of that? From yeah, are we are we live now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, good. So um, for sure, I mean, the debate that I work on is in meta ethics. I don't actually do ethics really. I don't try to figure out what it's right or wrong to do. It's not because I don't think about those kinds of questions. I certainly do, and I think as an anti-realist, I'm entitled to do so. We could talk about how later if you like. But what does moral realism mean? It's something like um, the view that morality is a realm of fact. So think about how you view questions like this. Um, is there more than one inhabited planet in the universe? Nobody knows the answer, but there's an answer, right? So there are answers to questions that we don't, which, which answers we don't know, right? Um, but now if I asked you, what's the best color? You'd say, or what ought to be cool next year? You know, what kind of dress, dress uh, or clothing would be, should be cool next year? You'd say those questions don't make sense. There's no fact of the matter about that stuff, right? Um, what ought you to like the taste of? Mm, no, doesn't make sense to even ask the question from most people's point of view. So which one is morality like? Is it a realm of fact in that sense? And if it's a realm of fact, are the facts um, made true by people's beliefs about what those facts are or not? Because that would be kind of relativism, the view that uh, you know, a society's beliefs or an individual's belief make, make for moral truth. And anti-realists like me are no more sympathetic with that than we are with realism. In fact, I think realism is more plausible than any version of relativism. Relativism is kind of in between realism and anti-realism. They think there are facts of the matter, but if you thought that there were, that you say, there's a fact about the shape of the earth, and it's whatever you think it is for you, and it's whatever I think it is for me, that's the fact, then you wouldn't really be a realist about, you wouldn't be a realist about the shape of the earth, right? So relativism is kind of this hybrid between realism and anti-realism, and in some ways I think that's um, one of its weaknesses. Anyway, I'm an anti-realist. I think there are no moral facts. I don't think there are moral truths. I have moral values. I care about stuff, I care about what kind of person to be, um, how I want to live. You know, I have a, uh, commitments of that sort. And I think I can reason about them. I think I can take them seriously. I don't think there's anything wrong with imposing them on other people in the sense, you know, for example, trying to stop Hitler um, or break up a fight or something like that. Wait, you don't think it's really right to do that? Yeah, but I don't think it's really wrong either. So it's all right. Um, I'm not against doing it. I'm in favor of doing it. So in day-to-day -day life, I talk just like anybody else. Um, you'll ask, you ask me, what do I think about abortion? And I'll give you an, an answer and an argument for my view. But and in day-to-day -day life, we really don't need to worry about the meta-ethical commitments that lie behind that. Um, 
But if you ask me for my ethical commitments, what I will say is that uh, I don't think there are moral facts. I, su I suppose one just one question before delving into the topic itself then would be why is it important for people to uh, come to an understanding of this kind of realm of meta ethics as well um, I, why, why is I, it an important area of study for people so when you ask why it's an important area of study you can't be meaning to ask me for an answer to the question of why it's morally oh, yeah. important yeah I, I don't, don't mean that in like a gotcha sense yeah <laughs> yeah right I don't mean um, it that, like that that would be troubling right yeah. Um, so if you want to know why it's important to me, I can tell you that I've been curious about these things all my life. I'm, I still have to decide how to live. These questions are really important to me. I'm surrounded by people who believe in morality, and I would like to know whether they're right or wrong. I, I once went to a restaurant for lunch with a colleague, and sitting next to me were two colleagues from other departments, English and religion. And they were drunk by the time I encountered them. And they were, they were telling me that their disciplines were superior to philosophy because we were still worried about whether God exists or not. And they had moved beyond that to the question of why people believe in God. And I said, so you've proven that there is no God? No, no, we don't just don't care. Like, so you don't care whether if you live a certain way, you'll, your soul will be damned for eternity. So you don't care whether there's a being that created us and well, controls reality and makes demands of us. That's not important to you. It seems like an important question, an important question. And so it's an important question in my mind, whether there's such a thing as morality or not, and what to do if there's not, right? You know that there are two kinds of anti-realist. Um, I mean, there are many kinds of anti-realist, but there's a broad uh, line to be drawn between people who, the line is drawn on the grounds of views about moral language. If I say to you that, if I think that, so, there's, we play baseball here. I'm a Red Sox fan. Uh, my son's a Yankee fan. Red Sox fans often say things like, Yankees suck. The Yankees stink, okay? If they meant that the Yankees were bad baseball players, it would be a very, very foolish thing to say because they're always good. What it means is something like, boo Yankees. The surface grammar doesn't reveal what's really going on with that sentence. Well, some people think that moral statements are like that, um, to say that it's wrong to kill your grandmother for money is merely to say something like boo, killing your grandmother for money. And then there are many more sophisticated versions of that view. But there's another view according to which when people talk moral talk, they're making factual assertions. They're just all wrong, or at least all the positive ones are wrong. That's an error theory, right? It says that we treat moral talk the same way we treat talk of ghosts or the way an atheist like me would treat talk of God. When my colleague says that he thinks God exists, it would be an insult to him to interpret him as merely expressing attitudes about it. He believes that there really is such a being. I think he's wrong, but we're actually disagreeing. It's not like he's just expressing an attitude and, and I express an attitude. You know, if I said, um, I like beans, and you said, I don't like beans, or if you, I said, yay, Red Sox, and you said, boo, Red Sox, nobody would think there's, we wouldn't get, be getting anywhere, really. So um, I guess I'm closer to the error theorist end of the spectrum. I'm not real sympathetic with the, uh, not the, the view according to which moral sentences merely express attitudes or any of its um, offspring, more and more sophisticated all the time. Um, I think there might be another view, uh, possible view, but anyway, error theorists now are concerned about the question of what to do if the error theory is right. 
And I think that's a real interesting, interpreted one way, I think that's a very interesting question. Interpreted another way, I think it's a very foolish question. Um, under what interpretation is it a sensible question? Um, if I think there's no morality, what do I do now? That's an important question for me to answer. And I've got views on that. Is they, they call this the what's next problem, right? But here's a question I think doesn't need to be answered. What happens when everybody is an error theorist? How do we coordinate our behavior and stuff like that? Because I don't think that there's any chance of that happening anytime, you know, within the reasonably foreseeable future at all. And I don't think it's desirable necessarily just because I think that there, there's no morality doesn't mean I have to go around convincing people of that. I'm not afraid to talk about it. I don't think it should be kept secret. I'm not for keeping it secret, if you like. But um, I don't have any concern to convert the world to the error theory and then figure out how to coordinate afterwards. I'm happy getting along in the world with people who have mistaken beliefs about all sorts of stuff. And, and anyway, I could be mistaken. So if, if I were to touch on my understanding of the error theory then, and then maybe you can tell me where I'm missing things and elaborate on certain points. Mm -hmm. So it would be that um, when, we, when we use moral language, um, it, it's a cognitivist position. So we have beliefs, right. but the, all those beliefs systematically yeah. are false. Is that That's right. correct? All the positive ones. I mean, I might have the belief that there is no moral prohibition on scratching your nose. Um, and that's true, according to the error theorist. So you have to be careful how you formulate it. But yeah, so it's a combination of a view about language and thought that it uh, that our sentences about morality are factual, make factual claims, and likewise with what's going on inside of our heads, um, that we're thinking in terms of uh, uh, we're thinking as if of a realm of fact. Um, but, or that people in general are, it's not about what philosophers are thinking, and that um, there are no such facts, or at least no positive facts of that sort. But then the question arises, well, now what do we do? Some of that debate, I think, is um, really messed up because people are worried about what to do if everybody converts to anti-realism. And I just, you know, we could do a lot of philosophy about what happens if everybody grows a second head, but it ain't happening. And, and what would be um, some of the main um, arguments then that lead to the conclusion that all of these moral facts um, are, are false? All of these moral factual claims are false. Factual right? claims, yeah, sorry, yeah. Yeah, these, these yeah. factual claims are false. Yeah, so um, there are a number of arguments about this. And the first thing that I would say in response to that, though, is that um, we need a reason for putting the burden of proof on the anti-realist in the first place. So the way the debate typically goes, and I've written about this, is realists will often claim that we experience the world as if it's a realm of fact, the moral world as if it's a realm of fact. Um, we're entitled to believe that things are the way we experience them to be or as they seem to be, unless we have darn good reason to, uh, to believe otherwise. And so now all we have to do if we're realists is defend against um, anti-realist arguments because we're the default position. But I think both premises of that argument are uh, at least questionable. I think it's pretty clear that we don't just experience morality as if it's a realm of fact. If you've ever taught this stuff, you haven't yet, but you will maybe one day. Um, if you ever teach this stuff, you find out that most of your students, at least at a place like where I teach, are either some kind of relativist or some kind of anti-realist. 
Um, so clearly those people are, um, I mean, I think it's a little bit more complicated than I'm laying it out right now, but the um, those people don't think that they're committed to moral realism. Maybe they're committed to moral realism and or to morality being a realm of fact, and they are kidding themselves about it. But I don't like to think that way. There is empirical research being done now about whether people are committed to moral objectivity, regular people, so-called folk. Mm. I called for it in a couple of papers. I, I, I said, we need this, we need to find out because an argument like this argument from moral experience, as I call it, um, has as a premise that people experience morality as if it's a realm of fact, let's find out if that's true. But I think the research so far is, in, although it would be grist for my mill because most of it suggests that people either don't have a definitive view about that or, commit, or aren't, but, uh, definitive presupposition that they're making. Presumably most people don't have views on metaphysical questions um, or that the commitments are going the anti-realist direction. I would like it if the research were correct because then my view would have some support, but I don't think that the research has, I think there are problems with most of what's been done on this score over the last 20 years. And I also think the second premise can be challenged. That is, we need a reason for thinking that if we experience something a certain way, if the world seems a certain way, we're entitled to believe it's a certain way. We're not entitled to presume that we're entitled to make a presumption, right? We need an argument for the presumption. And realists tend not to give that. They tend to think that um, it sort of uh, just goes without saying that if you experience it as having a certain character, probably got that character unless there's evidence the contrary. And you may be familiar with arguments for the existence of God that have the same character. Um, what's his name? Uh, he just died. There's a philosopher of religion I'm outside my area now who made this argument quite explicitly. Yeah, I think, I, I think I'm thinking of the person as well. I can remember that. Is it Norman Geisler? No, no, no. Um, he just died. Um, so either he's with God now or he's not. Um, of course, that's true of all of us. Um, but yeah. Anyway, people make the same kind of argument for, you know, seems like there's a God. So seems like there's free will. And I'm a philosopher. I don't like to take things, take common sense as um, placing parameters on what we're going to count as true. I mean, I think it's hard to avoid reasoning from intuitions of some sort, but um, I'd like to go back a little further than that. Certainly, it seems like a bad argument for God's existence. Seems like there's a God, so I'm entitled to believe there's a God unless you can prove there's not one. Um, you, you mentioned in there talking about like um, your um, students' views playing like a role in in some of the things you're thinking about. And you've I've heard you talk before about kind of like the role of collecting empirical data and using that in philosophy when doing this kind of thing. And yeah. a lot of um, moral philosophers seem to talk about morality as this a priori pursuit that is without like outside world experience and or almost like mathematics or something like that. And it seems... So why do I think that the empirical stuff would be relevant at all? Yeah, sure. Yeah. 
yes yeah, so, something like that and or yeah or that just, just a question about what what's the role you think that this has to play or that it currently isn't playing in moral philosophy and where, where, so where you think it if, should if we if we could get empirical research that we could trust on this and um it's a pretty early stage really in the efforts to do so um it would be useful in my mind for at least two reasons first um this argument, I'll call it just the argument for moral experience, um, depends um, on the premise that we experience morality as if it's a realm of fact. If we don't, the argument falls apart. So in my view, the main argument for moral realism, and as Jonathan Dancy said, maybe the only argument for moral realism, um, requires the premise that um, people have a certain sort of moral experience. So I'd like to know if that's true. Um, you get people like there's a, Frank Jackson wrote this book from meta, metaphysics to ethics, in which he said, I'm firmly in, in the camp of people who think that empirical studies are appropriate here when we need them. But we know that people experience morality as if it's a realm of fact. Um, wow. Uh, Stephen Stitch and Jonathan Weinberg make that they make a little kind of inside joke about Frank Jackson. They say, it's as if he's never been in a classroom or hasn't been in a classroom for 20 years. And he's pretty, you know, he's a, often been a research professor who doesn't have to do a lot of teaching or doesn't get to do a lot of teaching, as I would think. Um, so they said, in our classes, our students are relativists or anti-realists for the most part. And he, he responded to them. He said, that's what they say, but watch what they do. They have moral views and they reason about them and they rely on them. And my answer to that is I do that too. And I think it's perfectly kosher. That is, I have moral attitudes, I have moral commitments and I reason about them. Maybe they're just doing the thing that I think it's perfectly kosher to do. Um, you can't go from people see, people make moral statements to they are therefore committed to moral objectivity. That seems wrong to me. I think there's some, it's, it's evidence that people are committed to moral objectivity, but I think the evidence is pretty, um, it's pretty, that's pretty thin evidence. So I'd like to see research for that reason. The second reason I think it's important is because we need to make sure that we've identified the thing we're trying to talk about. Okay, so um, you don't wanna, I mean, here's a cheap argument for moral realism. Um, by morality, I mean this pen. Do you really doubt that it's real? Okay, I win, all right? That's not, that, I've just changed the subject to something easier. So I wanna know what the subject is. I wanna know, know that we haven't come up with a definition or a, an argument for morality instead of morality. Morality is what, whatever it is that people who use the moral vocabulary are talking about, if anything. So we need to know what people are talking about, I think. Now that's more controversial, I think, than the first claim, but um, that's, that's, what I, that's my, my view, certainly. As so, someone who is listening in has asked, sorry, what would good evidence look like as well, if you wanted to comment on that? For morality. Um, real, yeah, yeah, for, yeah, for morality being real or not real. What, what, what would these things, what would we expect to kind of see in these? Yeah, I'm not really sure. You have to ask the moral realists what they think would be good evidence for it, because a lot of them will say the best evidence is that we experience it, it, it as if it's real and so, I mean, there are more and less sophisticated versions of this. I have a colleague who says, your view is clearly crazy and wrong because you don't think Hitler was a bad guy. QED, you know, you're, 
obviously wrong. It's, so there are these beliefs that people take very, very seriously. And they take as, in a way, if not basic, close, closer to basic than most of what we believe. Um, and they think that that's, you know, they want, they're entitled to conserve those beliefs. They're entitled to treat those beliefs as having some warrant merely because we hold them. I find that to be um, a pretty difficult and puzzling position because, I mean, suppose I, very famous example from David Christensen, suppose I believe the next lottery number is gonna be even, right? I just find myself believing it. I wake up in the morning and think, you know what? Next lottery number is gonna be even. Do I have any warrant for believing that? Do I have any evidence for it? I think the answer is no. So part of my problem with moral realism is that I don't think there have been a lot of very serious arguments in its favor. There are some. Um, they tend to be, the arguments that you get tend to be either based on this sort of presumption that I've described earlier, or, uh, well, that's, that's the main thing, I guess, or the preservation of these moral beliefs and commitments. You know, we already believe that stuff, you've got to start somewhere, et cetera. I don't find those to be very persuasive. Um, but I do get the intuitive pull of things like, you know, Hitler was really a bad guy. Um, it's a cost of my view that that turns out not to be true, but I'm not sure it's a cost that I need to, um, you don't want to think, you don't want to say, I, I don't want to, I don't believe in that because if I believed in it, there would be some, if it were true, there'd be some bad, sorry, if it were false, there'd be some bad consequence. So it's true. Right. If there were no God, oh no, we'd be all alone in the universe. So there's a God. Well, some bad things are true. Yeah, yeah. It's, it, it doesn't make it true because you really want it to be the case, sort of thing. Yeah. Um, so, so, so um, another question then might be to make the the more positive claim then that our moral claims are false. And, and I've heard you kind of argue, say, from like moral disagreement and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Is that is this a position that you still hold um, or? What, what yeah. would be the main kind of positive case to make? Good. So I think there's more than one version of a kind of argument against moral realism from disagreement. Um, how would it work? Uh, it clearly can't go like this. Um, premise one, people disagree about morality. Conclusion, morality is not real. Okay. You need some link between it, people disagreeing and it being um, unreal. Um, but what kind of conclusion could there be that would uh, follow from anything like, I mean, people disagree about the shape of the earth, but there's a real shape of the earth. People disagree about whether the moral argument from disagree, the argument for moral disagreement works. But I think there's an answer to the question of whether the argument for moral disagreement works, right? So it better not be something like that. Um, you might be disappointed to learn that I think that the argument is, um, rests on some empirical questions about uh, that is its success depends upon some empirical uh, claims about how much disagreement there is and what sort there is. But I don't think you go straight from the disagreement to some metaphysical truth. I think the disagreement, if it shows anything, shows that, put it like this, um, you and I disagree about a moral question. One of us is not getting the right answer, right? Clearly, because of the law of non-contradiction. Right, um, they can't both be right. Um, one of us is using this faculty of moral, of, by which we try to gain access to the moral truth, 
reasoning, search for reflective equilibrium, intuition, whatever you want to call it. One of us thinks that, um, both of us think that we, we're having access to, of some sort, epistemic access to moral truth. We're getting at the truth. Okay, but one of us isn't, pretty clearly. Maybe both of us aren't. Okay, that's one of the worries. It, the more disagreement there is of the right sort, the more it raises the worry that what's going on when we think about morality is not our getting access to anything, but just expressing attitudes that um, you know are common in our culture, et cetera. These questions, I, when, it, when you talk to the general public, you have to be, um, I'm conscious that I'm oversimplifying in places here. You should feel free to push me on any of it because um, there's a lot more to be said about all those things. Yeah, but I think I, anyway, the argument has to go by way of epistemology. That the, the disagreement suggests, if it suggests anything, that we don't um, have epistemic access to moral truth. Make sense? Yeah, yeah. And I, I'd say, let, um, if is the criteria then that if there's like n n degree of disagreement on a topic, then we can say we don't have epistemic access to the truth about it? Is is that? It's not quite that simple. Okay. Um, because some kinds of disagreement wouldn't count against epistemic access in the first place. So suppose you and I disagree about human sacrifice. Okay, I think that human sacrifice is a moral imperative. We ought to do that. And you think that that's just horribly wrong, that it's a terrible thing to do. I bet you'd agree with me though, if I could get you to accept the empirical claim that the crops won't come if we don't do a human sacrifice every month or so. Right? You'd think, I mean, let's see, it's kill one virgin if we can find one, um, or um, everybody dies. We all starve to death. Mm, I guess it turns out it is okay to do that, right? So we would be disagreeing, but not about morality proper, but about something non-moral or and maybe non-evaluative in general, right? So that kind of disagreement doesn't count against moral objectivity or against moral knowledge. In fact, if we found that when people share the same non-moral beliefs, they come to share the same moral beliefs, that would be some evidence that, I mean, that, that would undermine the argument from disagreement, I guess, to some degree at least. So that's one kind. Another one is we're talking about the same, um, we're, the same principle might have different implications for different situations. So it used to be said that um, certain, um, people who live in the far north in the icy realms of, um, say, northern Alaska, used to put their parents out on ice floes to die, right? And the parents would go willingly, right? Well, that isn't that, isn't patricide one of the, just one of the, parasite one of the worst things you can do? Well, it depends on whether we're all going to starve to death unless we put the people who can no longer help gather food and make it and do the things that need to be done out. And people all recognize this and feel like their life is had a good life and it's enough at a certain point don't need to be kept alive in a diminished capacity you might agree that it's morally permissible or even required to do that right or people somehow sometimes get confused about um sort of relational moral truths it's i believe that if if there were morality or i can just express some attitudes here if you like it's wrong to give somebody in um Southern India, a food with your left hand. I think it is wrong. I mean, if anything's wrong. Why? Um, because it offends people and it's wrong to offend people no matter where you are. 
doesn't offend people over here. So um, the fact that there's disagreement, there's apparent disagreement between the person who thinks it's okay to give people food with your left hand and the person who doesn't might just really depend on the circumstance of um, which they might agree if they um, got the, it's another case like the Eskimo case. Um, it, they might agree, by the way, I used the word Eskimo in the presence of one of my students in Uppsala okay. um, about two years ago. And she looked, the look of horror on her face was really something. And I said, you think I shouldn't be saying that word? I should be saying Inuit. And she said, yes. And so I did some research on it. And I found out that there are some people who are Nordic people who are not Inuit, but Eskimo, right? Um, there's some question about where the word comes from and does it mean something really bad, you know, when it's, um, or did it originally mean something? I don't know. But I know that if you call somebody who's not Inuit, Inuit, just because they live up north and you're not supposed to use the word Eskimo, you're being, you're making the same kind of mistake. So, yeah, I've, not, um, I've not read any like um, of that that sort of strain of philosophy yet to to have those kind of objections to. <laughs> yeah, it's more like academia, especially in the states, you know. Um, but this was in Sweden, and um, right, student just looked at me like I just you know suggested that we eat our babies or something like that. Don't think so. Anyway, um, yeah. So it's, a, it's sorry, I was gonna, this custom. Yeah, um, it's, it sounded like at a point there um, you said it's wrong to um offend people for example and that sounded or I, maybe I, maybe my memory is not not quite remembering it exactly right and, and maybe you were playing devil's advocate with yourself i don't but I, like what's the difference between like the the error theory then and say like a, a kind of nihilism or something because i think that that's yeah. the worry so that when, first have. of all when I, I i try to be careful about this um but i'm talking fast um so look I don't think anything's really right or wrong. That's the official view. I might talk like a regular person who does because it's very, it's convenient. When I talk at the office, you know, or when I talk among friends, I go to a philosophy conference and I see people and they all know I'm an anti-realist because there aren't very many of us. Um, I'll say, you know, it's wrong to torture babies for fun. And when I say that, I'm really just expressing my attitude. I don't think that's what people are doing in general. So I'm not a non-cognitivist. That's not my view of ordinary language, but it's the way I'm using language. And I just want you to understand that. And then eventually I can just drop the talk, right? So I might just be expressing attitudes when I say it. Now you asked something else about that. You said, um, what's the uh, difference between an error theorist and a nihilist? Yeah, yeah, I suppose. Because I think, I think that this is the worry for, and, and maybe like there's this visceral cultural reaction that you see as people kind of polarize politically and stuff like that, that all seems to be centered around um, this loss. You, you know, like you, I'm sure you're familiar with people like Jordan Peterson and stuff where it's this, it's like reconnecting people to meaning and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, and it's all to do with that there's this sense and maybe, maybe this is just a narrative, but um, this sense of um, nihilism and meaninglessness that has sat behind like modern yeah. philosophy. and modern so let me say a couple of things about that. First, um, many people in philosophy refer to the error theory as nihilism. Okay. Almost all of them are, are moral realists of some sort. Error theorists don't like that term. And I, I, I said my view is closer to error theory. We could talk about a little bit about what's different um, or where I think there might be a possibility of a difference. But anyway, um, why do error theorists, assume I'm an error theorist for the moment, why do error theorists not like the term nihilist, because 
the term has multiple meanings. And one of them is the one you just suggested that, you know, like there's no value in the world, nothing matters, right? You, I don't know if you've ever read, there's an old paper by Richard Hare. I actually tried to assign it to my students once and I couldn't get permission from the Hare estate to use it. I think because Hare was embarrassed by it later, but I think the beginning of it is really great. He talks about how he and his wife had an exchange student staying with them. And the exchange student was from Switzerland, but from the French speaking part of Switzerland. And the kid said, um, I wonder if you have any books in French. I'd like something to read tonight. And Hare said, sure, on this shelf right here, all these books are in French, help yourself. Came down the next morning, he was chain smoking, flat effect. And Hare said, what's wrong, are you okay? And he said, nothing matters, nothing matters. And Hare's response was, does nothing matter to you? It sure looks like it matters to you that nothing matters, for example. Why, does, why do things have to matter to the universe or in some objective sense for them to matter to us? So I have values, right? I've raised two children. Believe me, I raised them with values. Um, I wanted them to be honest. I'm committed to honesty. I wanted them to be fair, committed to that. Um, I didn't want them to be committed to morality whatever it is, right? Even if I found morality, I'd still want to know what its contents are before I knew whether to sign on to it. In the same way that people sometimes say about God, right? I mean, it matters to me a lot whether God's a Nazi or God's really nice, like, like parts of the Bible suggest. Um, not all of the Bible, but parts. Um, I, I, I don't want to, even if I found that there was a God but that God's values were very different from mine, like the values of God in the Old Testament, I, 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 would, I might be cowardly and, and pretend to worship, but it's hard for me to imagine that I could bring myself to actually worship or want to, such a being. Likewise, um, I've got these value commitments and I approach the world with them. They're not uh, immutable, they change. I, I reflect a lot and that I'll change my values in response to that. How do I reflect? I look for non-evaluative facts, for example. I try to get my values to be um, coherent with one another, to fit together, at least to be consistent because inconsistent values can't be acted on. So my toy example is, um, suppose I accept as a moral principle that one should never eat any seafood. Um, weirder things have been held, right? The Pythagoreans thought you shouldn't eat beans. Um, it was morally wrong to eat beans. I think they thought they had souls in them or something like that because they caused wind. But I'm not really sure of that. Um, okay. Uh, can't remember where, where I just was on that. Sorry. Um, so before the Pythagoreans and beans, um, you were saying about tools that you use to... Yeah, so I, yeah. Right. I, I try to make my views consistent with one another. I try, try to make them coherent. Um, I try to uh, confront them with examples from cases that are not so close to my own situation, right? Because I know that I might be biased in certain ways and I want to avoid that. Um, I, I give a whole lecture on how moral reasoning is possible notwithstanding there being uh, no moral facts. Start with what I value. I 
try to align that. I try to see what I would value after I confront the non-evaluative facts. I try to make my values consistent with one another. So when I have, a, a, here's where that came up. I thought, um, so here's a rule, never eat um, seafood. But here's another moral rule I accept. Eat some shrimp every Tuesday. Okay, when it comes to Tuesday, what am I supposed to do? So even as an anti-realist who's got values, I still need to make them consistent or at least something like consistent. Consistency is a property of propositions. Um, anyway, uh, I'm at least trying to get them yeah, sure. to, be, uh, to fit together. So, so is it I like a coherentist? Sorry. Is it like is it like a coherentist view of uh, truth, say that you're taking here, or of, of not a coherentist view of truth because yeah. I don't believe there's any truth here, but I do want my views to be co coherent in the sense of consistent because they um, I wouldn't be able to act on them if um, they weren't. Now that's not all that motivates me. I also feel like I want to I want my values to sort of be coherent in a different sense. I this would be an odd way to live and psychologically very hard to imagine finding yourself comfortable living like this. Yeah, on Mondays, um, I'm a Nazi. On Tuesdays, I'm very anti-Nazi, right? Then I switch back, you know. Sundays, I don't, I'm, I'm agnostic about the whole thing, right? Um, yeah. I would find that to be a kind of, um, I would experience a kind of, if you'd like, affective dissonance from um, those two attitudes. They, um, they, they're not both. Um, I, I don't want to say only one of those can be right because I don't think either one of them is right. But still, holding them both at the same time would be like, I love all vegetables and I hate broccoli, asparagus, Brussels sprouts, beans, etc. Um, who's like that? I want to, okay. I've got a set of attitudes and I want them to be ones that I accept all the way down, as it were. So I look for, I test them against one another and I make adjustments. But the search for reflective equilibrium is, is a method of reasoning, not a, um, it doesn't reflect any commitment to there being some truth or to being to yeah. coherence being a way to um, get access to truth or to truth being coherence, right? The, Another tool would me, be, sorry, you, sorry, you go. I was, I was going to say that there's a, a small part of me that wants to say on that. It seems like that is some sort of moral imperative though, not to hold contradictory beliefs or not to, I mean, I mean, what, why is that not the case? Why is well, that not why, like should, why not to hold contradictory beliefs is yeah. if you want to have true beliefs, um, contradictory beliefs can't both be true, right? Okay. Um, that so just like by it. a definition sort of thing. Well, that's just, it's just a, a truth of logic, right? It can't be the case yeah. that um, all people are mortal and some people are not mortal, right? Um, anybody starts telling you that that can be true and, they, and usually my students will try to pull out Schrodinger's cat. Um, which they completely don't understand, I'm pretty sure. Not that I understand it, but I've asked physicists about it and they say, that, no, that's not the right interpretation of Schrodinger's cat, that contradictions can be true. That's a silly interpretation. But anyway, they'll say, um, yeah. When, when I encounter somebody who says that, I point out to them that if you believe a contradiction, then logically everything follows from that. If you believe that all people are mortal and some are not mortal, then you are committed logically to Don is God, Don is not God, Don's name is Mary, Don's name is not Mary, and anything you can come up with, it all follows. 
So there's a good reason not to have contradictory beliefs. Why not have contradictory attitudes or conflicting attitudes are not really contradictory, right? Because that's that logical property. Because A, because you can't live according to them um, in cases where that where that contradiction presents itself, like the Tuesdays. And B, because of this kind of affective dissonance, it's just uh, hard for me to, I, I wouldn't feel like I was done with my moral thinking if I found myself with attitudes that pulled me in opposite directions like that. I don't think the analogy with desires is that strong. I can look, I, right, I can want to be with Mary and I can want to be with Sue and I can't be with both of them, but um, I want them both anyway. I want both of those outcomes anyway. That's perfectly reasonable, but you know, being committed to getting rid of all those Jews and being committed to fighting those Jew haters, um, that I find myself pretty uncomfortable with, right? It, in the same way that people are uncomfortable with cognitive, when they are confronted with their own cognitive dissonance, kind of affective dissonance. We we're talking about moral reasoning and um, I was giving you a little list. Um, I think there are other things I can do. I can make arguments from premises that I accept. Um, to conclusions that in, it's not easy to explain how to make the logic work here, but I can, I can reason from this, like this. I can think from, um, I'm in favor of equality for all people. I can draw the conclusion that I, um, that if I wanna be coherent, I, um, I can push myself in the direction of rejecting things like, um, but women are not equal, right? If I'm for equality for all people, then I'm for equality for all people, not um, equality for all people and no equality for women. That would just be a really hard position to hold on to. Um, I can look for more general uh, principles that give kind of structure to my attitude. So you asked me, there, there, it strikes me that there are some moral attitudes that you can just hold on to for no further reason, just like there are certain beliefs that perhaps you can hold on to for no further reason. Um, if somebody said to me, what's wrong with war? What's bad about war? And I were speaking, let's now just let me allow me the, um, to speak in the ordinary way because of, for convenience sake, um, I'd say, well, it causes suffering, right? There's a reason, there's something bad about war causes suffering. If I were being careful, I'd say something like what you'd say, ask me, why am I against war? And I'd say I'm against it because it causes suffering. And you say, why are you against suffering? I start to back out of the room because I wouldn't know what to say to somebody who didn't see suffering as undesirable, who wasn't against suffering in my way of looking at it. Um, think, thought of, didn't think of it as something to be minimized where there's no cost to doing so at a minimum, right? Um, but if you, somebody says, my, here's my moral attitude, you know, morally wrong to, I'm, I'm strongly against stepping on cracks. I'd say, oh, you must think, you're, you know, breaks your parents' back, you know, one of your parents' backs. And the person says, no, no, I'm just against it, simpliciter. I just think people shouldn't do that, or I'm against people doing that. Again, I'd be very, very puzzled. It just doesn't look like the sort of thing that you could, that, anybody I know would be comfortable holding for no further reason. So I look for the most general principles I can to give structure to my moral attitude, um, attitudes. Um, why do I care about honesty? Maybe there's something that I care about that honesty is 
instrumental towards, for example. The moral reasoning works. The short view, the short answer to the question, how is moral reasoning possible for an anti-realist would be the same way it works for a realist, except you don't believe that you're trying to find the truth. Um, again, that gets a little bit complicated because you know, you can't say that you can't really talk about inconsistent moral beliefs if you don't have any beliefs about morality, you just have attitudes. Attitudes can't be inconsistent, but they can not fit together in other ways that are analogous. Yeah, I was, go- I was gonna say like, let's say if we had, um, because there's something, and I know you're, you're taking a cognitivist position, but the attitude is false. But for, um, for like the non-cognitivist, there's the Frey-Geach problem, the, you know, like if you put um, in like a, in like a syllogistic form moral, moral statements and things How, well yeah. but for the, for this view where we're saying that um let's say if if something uh, then it's wrong for the government to order something um something so it's wrong for the government to order it how how does that work on this view because it is the truth value of that statement being altered by the metaethical theory of our theory no there there are works. no moral truths on my view and so moral reasoning doesn't get us closer to the moral truth. There isn't one to get close to. Um, but if I held attitudes that, cor- that are the, image, the mirror image of um, inconsistent moral beliefs, like I'm for equality for all, and I'm also for no equality for women, um, I'm in that strange position that I really don't want to be in. Um, sure. Maybe I'm torn, but what, if, what do I value in that situation? It's indeterminate or um, my values are confused. I have values that are conflicted. That's something that I desire to avoid, right? I'm against, I'm against that. I, I don't like feeling that way. Not because it's morally wrong or because it leads to moral, false moral beliefs. I don't think it does. Yeah. I was mean to say um, earlier when you were talking as well, often I see, because I I engage quite a lot with Christian apologists as well through YouTube. And often um, in the kind of moral argumentation, there is a lot of this, well, if there's no um, ultimate or objective morality, um, then it is all just meaningless. And it's like, I, I, I think that there's a very powerful point to be said, well, even if we can't, even if there isn't, you know, it's not to say that this thing that might manifest itself to us um, purely subjectively isn't still there and worth pursuing. And I think that that's- It uh, turns out that a lot of us have very similar values, very similar attitudes and commitments. I think many of those would survive becoming an anti-realist, but I'm not interested in testing that hypothesis by converting the world to anti-realism. But we have, we're, we're put together in similar ways. So I'm gonna be uncomfortable if I'm in a world in which anybody feels comfortable just walking down the street and hitting me over the head. I'm going to feel safer in a world that's not like that. Um, We have goals in common, and some of these goals are most effectively achieved through cooperation, coordination, shared values, that sort of thing. So not only do I think that I can reason about morality, I think I can reason with others about it. I do it all the time. I do it in class. When I read, um, when I read applied ethics, if you ever read any applied ethics, you read Judith Thompson's famous article about abortion. Um, I don't think, I I don't find all the arguments there persuasive, but when I first read it, I didn't know whether she was a realist or an anti-realist about morality, because I could see it, it it was useful to me as an anti-realist to think about the arguments she put forward. I don't think there's anything incoherent about that. Mm, So, yeah, and and I, I think, I mean, 
it's not an argument against moral realism in any way, um, but I would speculate that some people find anti-realism um, fearsome. A little, it's a, it's a sort of scary world if that's true. And you get people saying stuff like, well, then there's just nothing. But they say the same thing about God. If there's no God, then there's, then there's no morality. We started at this, right? Then there couldn't be such a thing as morality. And I just don't think God helps solve that problem. Because even if there's a God, and God wants me to behave, wants all of us to behave a certain way, I have to make a decision about whether to sign up for that team or not. And I'm going to make it on the basis of my values, right? Even if I find that there's a moral truth apart from God. Okay, do I want to be moral? Well, depends on what morality turns out to be like. If, if the truth about morality turns out to be what the Nazis thought, and so far as any of them actually did, um, then I'm not uh, um, interested in becoming a moral person, right? In fact, if the truth about morality were utilitarian, I wouldn't be interested in becoming a moral person in that sense. And in fact, I think you can say things like that to people who, um, I mean, I think it's a worry for moral realists. You know, they, they, nowadays what's happened in light of these kind of problems is the moral realists always want to talk about moral reasons and nobody wants to ignore reasons, right? Who wants to be irrational? But if there are moral, I, I guess I think talk of moral reasons is kind of a cheat in a way, I'll tell you why. Um, there's a kind of reason that's very recognizable to me. There's a kind of irrationality that's very undesirable from my standpoint, from the standpoint of what I care about. Um, suppose somebody wants to get to Cleveland City in Ohio, and they know there's only one way to get there, the number 23 bus. Okay? So knowing that, they get on the number 25 bus, which is headed south to Miami, Florida. Okay? Um, well, they've acted in a way that frustrates their own ends. In fact, if I didn't know better, I'd say that person person knows that the bus will take them where they want not to go instead of where they want to go. I would say the person, um, it, I would say the per, that the person gives us reason to wonder whether she actually does have the desire in question. She's acting like she doesn't. She wants to get to Cleveland. Why is she getting on that other bus knowing that it doesn't go to Cleveland? It goes the, you know, the other direction. Um, nobody wants to be irrational in that sense. Now, you tell me there are these other kind of reasons, um, moral reasons, and they're really special. And I say, how do I weigh them against these instrumental reasons? I'm really familiar with the instrumental kind of reasons, the ones that are about how to get what you want. I'm not sure I understand these moral reasons. What are they like? What, how, what do I do when I've got a conflict between them and the um, non-moral instrumental reasons, merely instrumental reasons? And you know, realists might say, well, in cases of conflict, you follow your moral reasons. And I want to know um, what, um, let me put it, let me see if how, how to put that. I say, fine, in what sense are these the same sort of thing? Because I'm worried that you've taken this term reason, or rationality or reasonable, and nobody wants to be irrational. And you said, Luckily, we're not, you're not just immoral, you're irrational if you're immoral, as Kantian might say. And I say, but is that a kind of irrationality that um, I feel the same way about as I do about the sort of craziness of knowing how to get what you want and not pursuing it? You know, other things equal? Um, I don't think so. What's the cost of being morally rational? 
It's not that you're crazy like the person who wants to get to Cleveland. It's more like you're bad. But then why did you get to add the term irrational? Or why did you get to say that there are these moral reasons that you could call, that you can use the term, whatever you want, but I'm afraid you're sort of stealing the cachet that is attached to instrumental reasons. Anybody rejects those would be totally weird. Nobody who has desires has any problem understanding why they generate reasons. Even Kant believed in the hypothetical imperative. It's an instrumental rationality, right? So now we agree on that. The thing we disagree about is whether there are moral reasons too. And whatever there are, I don't want to call them reasons because it's a kind of honorific, right? And I don't see that it's been earned. I mean, you could tell me that I'm bad if I ignore morality or I'm not good, or I'm not perfectly good. But telling me that I'm irrational, that's just name calling as far as I'm concerned. Unless you can show me why, and Kantians try to do this, you know, Course Guard has complicated arguments about this. I don't think they're successful. Um, anyway, so there you go. I, I was wondering um, what you think some of the strongest arguments against your position are as well, um, or the strongest um uh, you know, it, it doesn't necessarily have to be um, like theistic moral realism or something, but maybe nope. like a non-cognitivism. Or what, what do you think are the, the strongest alternatives that there might be out there? I, I find non-cognitivism to be a weak alternative. Perhaps it's a good time to say that um, non-cognitivism has developed to the point where nobody even calls certain positions that we used to call non-cognitivist, um, non-cognitivist, they call them expressivist. Um, and they're complicated versions of non-cognitivism. You're not making a factual assertion exactly, but we can show you that there are ways to produce all the trappings, all the, um, as Steve Darwell said, all the objective pretensions of moral talk and thought. Is this like right? quasi, quasi-realism that you use? Quasi-realism is a version of expressivism. It's another name for expressivism. Um, and if you haven't um, had Jamie Dreyer on your podcast, you should have him on just so he can sing his song, Quasi. Right? Um, after, what's that song? Crazy, right? The old country song. Crazy for being in love with you. He's got Quasi, and it's all about Blackburn. Um, yeah, so that, so um, those people, to my mind, are wrong for a different reason than the non cognitivists. Um, I think that they've, I think those people are trying to make morality safe for our ordinary objectivist commitments just like the realists are. They reject realism because they think it makes more metaphysical commitments that um, aren't defensible. But they still want to talk about truth, for example. So they'll say, look, what is truth? Truth is just redundancy in a way, right? Um, the sentence snow is white is true just in case snow is white. And that's all we can say about it. But now let's take the sentence, it's wrong to kill your grandmother, which turns out to be a way of expressing your opposition to killing your grandmother, right? Is that true? Just in case it's wrong to kill your grandmother. And when I say it in the second case, I'm just expressing, I'm talking about, the, you know, I'm employing the same attitudes I was employing when I made the first statement. So, okay, we get a kind of truth there and people say it's no different than any other country. All right, um, I'm not interested in preserving those objective pretensions. I don't think they're necessary. Um, I mean, I haven't shown that they're pre that's pretense. Um, I'm just using a phrase Darwell used, but um, I'm not sympathetic with that form of 
of uh, non-cognitivism either. So what are the strongest responses to my view? Well, we've only talked about one argument against realism, um, a kind of argument from disagreement. And as I said, there are other versions of that. There's one that I want to tell you about because I think you might find it interesting sure. because of its theistic implications. But um, so let me let me just tr turn to that real quick. Um, I don't know if you've encountered conciliationism. I've not, no. Okay, so this is kind of hot in epistemology the last 10 or 15 years, maybe a little longer, 20. Um, famous example also from David Christensen, my former colleague, so I know his views really well. Um, you and I go to lunch every week. And we, what we always do at the end of the meal is we add up the bill, add a 15% tip, and divide it in half. And we each do our own calculation, and we always come up with the same number because we're equally good at doing that kind of math, right? One day you come up with a different number. It's off by $1 from my number. Should I remain confident that I'm right here? I think we're equally good at reasoning about this stuff. So shouldn't I discount my own view to some degree, to maybe to a large degree, maybe even down to being agnostic about what the number is? Well, it's probably one of these or the other, but I don't know which one. I mean, if I had two thermometers next to each other, they both give me the same temperature every day for a year. And then one day they're off by 10 degrees. I think, well, one of these is broken, but I don't know which one. Yeah, yeah. Right? And I don't know whether I'm the one whose uh, reasoning capacity is broken um, when I disagree with you about the mathematical question. Mm. Well, if that's true, if, dis if disagreement from... Um, by a peer, by an epistemic peer, somebody who's just like you in respect of their ability to think about that sort of question, right? If that should um, cause us to be less confident in our views, um, the more disagreement there is from the more peers, the worse it starts to look, right? Um, the more I ought to be start to wonder whether I've got a handle on the truth. So now think about somebody with a particular religious view, including atheism, okay? Um, I'm gonna make a bold claim and I, I, I challenge you to show me that it's wrong. I think it's gotta be right. I actually think it's just got to be right. Almost everybody's view about almost every religious question is wrong, almost everyone, because they contradict one another. They can't all be right. So for any given question, you've got your belief, lots of people disagree with you about it. Um, why would anybody be confident in any particular religious view knowing that? You have to think something like, oh, you know, I disagree with those Orthodox Jews, but they can't think very straight. That would be nonsense, right? I have to disagree with those Catholics, but they, they, they're not good thinkers because they disagree with me. That would be question begging, right? So um, you could see how so the first step would be, let's not be so confident of our views about theology, right? Because even, you know, somebody said, well, at least most people believe God exists. That's not even true in the world, right? Lots of people are atheists. Lots of people are religious and atheists. I, I take it that Buddhists don't believe in a God of anything like the same sort that Christians believe in. I think it's very tendentious to say the Buddhists believe in God at all. And that's kind of a Western way of looking at things, but um, never mind, um, it's certainly not the same kind of God, can't both be right. So I, I find that to, I mean, I know I've got my reasons, but I also know that I've got epistemic peers out there who have reasons of their own. And 
I worry that I ought to, the word is conciliate, I ought to adjust my credences, my degree of belief. And if there's enough moral disagreement among enough people who are pretty good at moral reasoning, as far as I can tell, or at least seem to be, um, then perhaps I ought to be not, I ought not to be confident that I'm getting at the moral truth or that they are, or that anybody is. And so I might get a kind of moral skepticism out of that. Well, how do you get from, how do you get from either of these uh, arguments from disagreement? How do you get from moral skepticism, the claim that we don't have moral knowledge to moral anti-realism? I'd say something like this, back to our burden of proof. I don't think that the realist gets to just assign the burden of proof to the anti-realist. And in fact, some anti-realists, unfortunately, to my view, betrayed the cause of anti-realism by accepting the burden. Mackey said, this is an error theory, so we need really strong proof for it. I'd say, no, it's just the other view, and both of them start out on an even playing field except that that's kind of a generous view for somebody like me to take because I could be saying, um, I don't think you should believe in stuff or I'm not, I don't want to believe in stuff for which I have no evidence, right? So the fact that it could be true doesn't give me a reason to believe it. Um, if I don't have moral knowledge, what other evidence do I have for the existence of morality? This goes back to that argument for moral experience. I, I seem to know a lot about morality. And if I do, then there's morality. But maybe those seeming, but questions what to do about those seemings, whether to take them seriously or not. Right? Well, it's, it's interesting, actually, because when you were talking about um, conciliationism there, it sounded a lot like, um, are you familiar with kind of like uh, street epistemology and Peter Boghossian and his kind of stuff? Peter Boghossian? Yeah, yeah, he's um, he's a philosopher at, or is it? Not oh, Paul at NYU. Uh, no, no, uh, uh, Pete, Peter Bogosian. Okay, I don't know him. Um, I wonder if he's yeah. related to Paul. Oh, I hope I've not got his name wrong. Let me, I'm going to... Paul's quickly... at NYU, he's a very important philosopher of language. Um, I think it's, I'm, I'm pretty sure it's... Another stuff. Yeah, it's def definitely Peter Bogosian. Um, cool. He... Yeah, he got a. He did something quite funny actually recently, where he got, he published like ten um, social sciences papers on like queer performativity in dogs and stuff like that under like a pseudonym to prove that the whole thing was kind of a bit of a broken joke in academia. But um, so a little bit like so Alan Sokol. Uh, I don't. I don't know about that one. Alan Sokol almost single-handedly killed postmodernism. Oh really? <laughs> he wrote a paper on um, quantum gravity and. Um, I don't know what, um, he's a physicist and he wrote this long paper filled with footnotes, um, and filled with sort of, um, and in the postmodern style, he sent it off to one of the premier American postmodernist journals called social texts. He loaded up the footnotes with laudatory references to the editors and he sent it off, um, but it, he built in lots of mistakes. Like I use the word natural number here when anybody knows anything about math, but no, I'm I could only be talking about real numbers. Or he cites the axiom of choice, um, which is a an axiom of decision theory as relevant to the question of whether abortion is okay or not. Like he just made, there were just all these howlers in it and they took it. They took the paper, they published it. And then he announced that it was a hoax. And the first response from the people at Social Text was, no, no, you may think it's a hoax, but you actually got it right, whether even if it was accidental. 
um, we stand by our judgment. And then he starts saying stuff like, well, okay, let's talk about what the natural numbers are, what the real numbers are. Yeah. Right. Um, and it really did a number on postmodernism. Thank goodness. Yeah. I just put, yeah, so I, it sounds very similar. I put, I just put one of them in the chat, which I found called uh, it re retracted article going in through the back door, challenging straight male homo hysteria, trans hysteria and transphobia through receptive penetrative sex toy use. So uh, hmm. that's what <laughs> this is. This is definitely not Paul Bogosian. Yeah, that's uh, um, but he he wrote a book called um, A Manual for Creating Atheists. But what he's talking about in that is for creating atheists. Yeah, ma a manual for creating atheists. And he's um, started this movement called street epistemology, which is basically um, uh, where people are going out taking it's generally religious beliefs but as well it works with like um anti-vaxxers or um that you know like a like oh i'm voting for this person on this policy that i'm really sure of whatever um and it's basically like a confidence scale so how confident are you in this belief and what would it take to change your mind how would you falsify that position a load of but it's it's it, it's to do with just asking asking these series of questions and it's quite um interesting but what you what you were talking about there in terms of that kind of conciliationism, that's a lot of what the street epistemology kind of aims to do. Um, or there's this thing that I think John Loftus calls like the outsider test of faith, where it's like, if you it, look at how, you know, like um, if you were to say, come to a text or something and open it, and it was talking about a flying man, would you believe it? Well, let's say you turn to another page and it's saying, um, you know, that there was an early creed about the flying man, would you believe it? And it's like, you add in all these bits of evidence, say for the cumulative case for the Bible. And it's like, well, I can see I'm just applying bias when it comes to the Bible, because mm -hmm. and it's, it's interesting that you took, because I've not, I've not come across that conciliationism stuff. Um, yeah, conciliation realism doesn't proceed by showing you that the other side has reasons that you haven't considered. It just says, look, knowing nothing else about you and being, and other than that you're just as good at that kind of math as I am, I still ought to be concerned when I find that you disagree. The mere disagreement by itself. In fact, some people would say, I shouldn't be looking at your reasoning and trying to evaluate it because I will disagree with your reasoning. Right. Um, I'll find plenty of things to disagree with. But um, if I still think you're just as good a reasoner as I am, I know that you could do the same to me, right? So it really proceeds I mean, it's a controversial view, but to my mind, a lot of what philosophy teaches us is intellectual modesty. And I mean, I think that's to the good. I'm in favor of that, if you like. Yeah. Um, there's one um, Christian apologist I've been speaking with recently. And one of my things that I've been kind of saying to these people in conversations is that I think like using theology and holy texts as a way of forming true beliefs doesn't have epistemic warrant and um i think uh, so some of the responses i've got have been like oh well you're um confusing epistemology with ontology there and it sounds like a similar they could say a similar thing to the the moral skeptic here where you're saying well we can't you know how how we come to form these beliefs isn't uh, doesn't meet a certain criteria whether that be like reliability or whatever um and so we, they so we could still be true. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure quite what they're saying with that objection. I think they're saying, yeah, but the but we're talking about ontology. We're saying uh, the moral good. You know, the the the. Uh, I don't care what about. Is the case? What's so in the Christian, in the context of religion, ontology is what is the case. Yeah. Um. You may have bad reasons. You may have had 
come to the belief that there's a God through bad reasoning, but showing that your, the reasoning isn't bad doesn't prove that there's no God. That's confusing epistemology with metaphysics, something like that. Yeah, something like but, that. Yeah. Um, I don't like to believe in things for which I have no evidence, I guess. Um, I, uh, I mean, I, I think I could give some reasons for why I take that approach, but I hope that's sort of obvious. Um, mm. There are lots of things people might believe for no evidence that I would find very, very troubling, and I wouldn't find them to have much warrant either. I know that somewhere down the line, maybe we can't avoid it, but where that is, open question. Um, so I'm just gonna I'm gonna ask people in the chat if they've got any questions um, that they want to get in, because a few people were saying, um, I don't know if juggling. There's a guy called Juggling Lessons um, said he wanted he'd love to be able to talk to you, but um, I've I've got a, a fair a kind of like. Um, diverse array of sort of atheists theists i've got a christian fideist in the comments as well um yeah i might have seen some of these people on your show yeah have you seen uh the one with harley then? well there's a guy whose last name is Fide fideist or something yeah like that. yeah harley the christian fideist i think I, I yeah that's like a nickname um so harley's saying do we choose what we believe what's the the technical philosophy jargon doxastic voluntarism or yeah no we don't <laughs> No, we don't, but we still reason with one another. And I don't, I don't think I've said anything to suggest otherwise, but the answer is no. Doesn't mean beliefs can't be criticized. Doesn't mean we can't reason, change our views, right? But it's certainly true that I, and you know, I don't have any view that um, like Sartre might've talked about um, choosing your values, being forced to choose your values. Um, I don't think we do a lot of choosing of our values. You grow up with certain values and you start from there. That's okay with me because you know, I um, find what I care about. I've got, I've got, well, do, do you have any presuppositions? And this one could be interesting because I don't know how familiar you are with, there's a weird um, sort of ap apologetics movement of not the old school presuppositionalism, it's called like a transcendental category argument where they're saying, you know, like every other worldview is incoherent and uh, unless you appeal to God at some level. Um, so to have, to even have any categories of like logic, I, the self or whatever, um, you've got to, uh, so they, they argue from presuppositions, but do, do you have any presuppositions that you think you're um, bringing in. I'm not sure what the what the thinker means by presuppositions here. I do think that that's um, the the claim that every other view is incoherent, every non-theistic view is incoherent, is one that would require a great deal of defending. Um, I don't see how it could be done actually, because I don't think those views are incoherent, and I don't think God helps. Right. You, you, the first time you ever thought about the first cause argument for God's existence, right? Somebody said, well, everything's got a cause, so there's got to be a first cause that we'll call that God, right? In fact, one of the comments on one of your interviews I saw, somebody said, um, you should go back and read Aquinas' five ways, then you'd know. I'm like, yeah, can you tell me the difference between some of those ways and the other ones? Because I don't know the medieval terminology is using well enough to understand that difference. But first cause argument, somebody says, you know, Hey, where did things come from? A lot of times you hear people, students will say the big bang and they say, where did the big bang come from? There's gotta be God. 
okay, where did God come from, right? It's the first thought you have, where did God come from? You haven't answered the question, you've just, and if you say, well, God's the thing that doesn't need an explanation or doesn't need a cause, um, I'd say, I'd quote Bertrand Russell and say, if there's something that doesn't need a cause, it might as well be the universe is God, right? I don't see how God, and also I just think that when people refer to God as the answer to the, you know, think of God as the answer to the question, questions about how we got here and stuff like that, I want more than just a label for the, um, we'll call it the answer, you know, and I'm going to name it God. That's not an answer, right? Where do we come from? Well, from God. If God is just as mysterious or how that could be, how that makes sense, how um, that's just as mysterious. We haven't really, as where the, the, a universe without an explanation, then I don't think we've really made much progress. Do I presupposition? Yeah. I mean, I'm committed to logic. I'm committed to reasoning. I have not yet taken on the view, some error theorists do, that all value uh, judgments are false, that there aren't any kind of reasons, including reasons for belief, in the sense of justifiers for belief, not explainers for why you believe, but justifiers. Um, they'll just go all, they'll, they'll be uh, error theorists about the whole realm of value. Um, I think you can, I actually think you can do that. Um, you still might want true beliefs and you still might have views about what leads you to true beliefs. So I think we'd probably dispense with reasons. I guess I like to talk about instrumental reasons, but I don't have to call them reason. I can just say there's an instrumental relationship between means and ends, right? And one end I have is truth. And so that's gonna give me certain canons of reasoning. I presuppose a lot of that stuff, I guess. But I don't presuppose that common sense is screwed up or that um, any alternative view is incoherent or anything like that. I don't, I don't think so. I think actually the question, like almost all tough philosophical questions, the, the kind that we spend a lot of time focused on is really a hard one. I, I've got a colleague who's died in the world theist. I've seen him, you know, going like this and talking to somebody that I don't think is there, right? But I respect his views. He's a super smart guy. And I should lower my confidence that there's no God in light of the existence of people like him, I think. Um, I, I, so I think these calls are pretty tough. And they're forms of moral realism that, even if they're true, they don't really cast, they don't really change my worldview much. Like I say, if you've got a kind of moral realism where you either just say that there are reason, moral reasons and I'm supposed to treat them like I do instrumental reasons, I'm going to object to that, right? Um, on the other hand, if you say morality, moral truths don't come with reasons attached, right? So it's true that if you um, cheat on your income taxes, you're doing something wrong, but that doesn't mean you have a reason to uh, avoid cheating on your taxes. Um, to them, I'd say, well, okay, um, then you just give me a kind of categorization of certain kinds of, um, I mean, I don't doubt that, that utilitarianism has made certain, according to utilitarianism, it's wrong to walk up to a stranger and slap the person in the face really hard for no reason. Okay. Um, I don't doubt that there are facts about what utilitarianism says we ought to do. I actually do doubt it in some cases, but um, let's simplify again. Um, but 
that those are the sorts of things I ought to pay attention to is another question, right? Likewise, somebody comes up with a moral theory, I'll still want to know. Um, so moral facts are just natural facts are the ones we're um, employing, that we're, we're referring to, uh, moral properties are the properties we're referring to when we use moral language, all that sort of naturalist view that was popular about 20 years ago. Um, I think it's one of the best forms of moral realism because it's committed to less weird stuff, right? You don't have to be an internalist. You don't have to believe that moral facts build reasons into them somehow or moral beliefs build um, commitments into them. Even so, if, if it turns out that there's a fact about what morality requires, real morality, the thing we're referring to when we use moral vocabulary, that doesn't answer my question about how to live on that view, it's not supposed to. You have to have this desire to be a good person. But then I want to know what a good person is like because I want to see what that, if that's compatible with what I value. So I don't think that those realists can get out of the question, the fundamental question of what kind of person to be. That we have to ask ourselves just by saying, well, there's a fact about what you ought to do. Like, okay, but why be one of those? Why be moral instead of schmoral? Richard Hare argued um, that if we understand the moral concepts and we're rational, that we will be committed to a kind of utilitarianism in a very deep way. Um, this book, Moral Thinking, is all about that. It's a wonderful book, like Ayer's book, very confident, very British, very clear, and probably very wrong. Um, and I remember, I met Hare years and years ago, and I remember saying to him, look, um, suppose I grant you every bit, everything in your book that the moral vocabulary has certain, carries certain logical commitments with it, just like the, you know, the sentence, all the books on the shelf are by Wittgenstein commits me to, and none of them is by anyone else, or not by Wittgenstein, I'll say. Um, suppose I'm con convinced that moral words, the words in the moral vocabulary carry certain logical commitments, and if we understand them, we're rational, and we wish to think morally, we will be utilitarians. That just raises the question, why think morally? Right? If I found out that moral thinking led to utilitarianism, I'd say that's the last thing I want to do is be a moral thinker. I'll be a schmoral thinker because then my views, my normative views were more like Rawls's views. And I find I find myself more sympathetic with those. Right? So very famous kind of objection to moral realism is the who cares objection or right family of objections. Okay, that's moral facts. In fact, the thing you saw with me and Peter Railton. I sort of ended by saying, you think you've convinced me of everything here. And all I think you've done is show me that you believe in the, such a weak form of moral realism. The anti-realist like me doesn't, isn't bothered by it. Okay, there's a category. There's these true beliefs about what the moral, the you know, the theory that is, the moral theory that corresponds to the way, the, the, the things people are referring to when they use words in the moral vocabulary or the meanings of moral words. Um, you convinced me that there is a correct moral theory, okay? What's that to me? Um, I still have to decide if I want to be committed to that, and I'm going to decide on the basis of values that I hold, not because morality, real morality, supplies them to me. I can live the same kind of life that any any moral realist lives. I think I just try to live it without something I consider to be illusion, or at least something that's not proven. I know I could be wrong about this. There's more than one kind of philosophers. Philosopher, it's it's a really good thing that their philosophers are so committed to their view that you know they write a book on moral realism 
and there are 500 arguments in it and the anti-realist loses every single one of them, right? But I'm a more modest philosopher. I think, you know, a lot of these questions are kind of 5149. I, I'm, I defend moral anti-realism and I think it's correct, but I don't think I've got a knockdown argument for it. I think smart people on the other side should make me somewhat skeptical of my ability to come to um, conclusions about even meta-ethical matters. All right, but so here's an important point. In the case of moral disagreement, I suggested that moral disagreement undermines moral realism. Why don't I think the disagreement about philosophical stuff undermines the claim that there are answers to philosophical questions, right? And the answer to that is, well, in the case of some moral, some philosophical disagreements, I do think that we should be skeptical of there being answers. I doubt that the universe draws a distinction, somehow settles the question of whether four-dimensionalism um, or presentism are true, which of those is true if either, right? I doubt that the universe itself somehow settles that. Um, but some questions I know have answers, like if you define God in a certain way, you can ask, is, that, is there such a being or not? There's a fact of the matter. Got to be one or the other, no God or yes God, if you've clarified what you mean by God. So that philosophical question. Oh. Are you dropping out? I just, um, I'm down to 10%. Well, that, I've, there's um, a couple more questions if you think you'll have time. we can deal with them. I'm happy to come back anytime you want. Sure. It's fun okay. talking to you. Awesome. Thanks. Um, so the first one is, um, is atheism a lack of belief in God or is it believing that God doesn't exist? Um, I, I don't want to, opine about what the term refers to because people use these terms in a lot of different ways and I'm not sure there's a canonical use, but I'm not an agnostic. I'm not somebody who thinks that I don't know whether God exists or not. I think there's no God. Um, as Woody Allen said, pardon me for quoting him, uh, I can't even get a plumber to come to my house on Sunday, much less a divine being, right? Um, I think there's no God. I'm that kind of atheist, the one who believes that there's no God. Why? Because I don't think I should believe in stuff that I have no good reason to believe in. And believing God is believing in something that's a kind of, that's kind of like magic, right? Not the kind of magic that we all know doesn't exist, you know, wizards and, and Hogwarts and all that stuff. But um, you have to believe that there's a lot of stuff going on that, you know, is really, really weird. There's this being that can know what is in everybody's mind all at once, all however many billion of us there are. Um, that's hard to swallow. I don't see, well, I mean, there are lots of things I could believe in, but I don't, I don't have a lot of, um, by the way, you talked about your Christian apologists. Um, yes. I wanted to say something earlier. Um, do people, have you talked to people about the, the New Testament and the origins of the New Testament and what we know about it? Um, like, it, you know, yeah. there's no, there's no original text of the New Testament. There's it, no it, such thing. So it, it depends who, who I'm talking to as to where the conversation necessarily goes. Like, um, actually just off offline before this, for example, I was talking to a guy called Jonathan McGletchy. Um, okay. he's got a PhD in biology, but he's like, do you know, like of Lydia McGrew and Tim McGrew and, oh, well that, uh, Tim McGrew, I think teaches epistemology somewhere. Lydia McGrew is like a new, a new Testament scholar. And does oh. a lot of work on like harmonizing the differences between the gospels and stuff. And so that, you know, the, they, um, but they acknowledge those differences. 
that yeah but that but they you know they say for example they kind of can ha- harmonize them all you know they make it sure. make it work or whatever but what yeah where i'm at for example i mean I'm, I'm sure in a conversation with someone like that who professionally does it they they've got facts and books and books and books but um maybe for, um for me where i'm at i'm certainly like you know i see let's say in in india where they have the gospel of thomas's canonical and um that's like anathema to anyone in the west and the kind of platonist the platonism that's present in that kind of gnostic version of christianity mm-hmm. or i was just reading up on um there's a guy who did his phd uh, philosophy at oxford on um augustinian Calvis- calvinism and the progression of augustine's theology and how it kind of how calvinism came out of that and he's basically arguing that for 400 years up until augustine you didn't have this kind of like what's called like the tulip system um so total depravity um or i forget what they all stand for but it's it's basically like um predeterminism with with god in there and and you can't do anything unless god gives you grace and stuff but he's saying well this is actually um augustine's influences from because he converted from like manichaeism and so uh, and then it's like you've got the whole of almost catholic theology for thousands of years which is based off of um this one guy's contributions and then like all you know you've got like origin irenaeus tortullian all these guys all completely kind of disagreeing with this guy's theology before them and yeah we can make the conciliations kind of argument here and it should drive us towards at least a more skeptical outlook it seems to me but there's a further problem which is that if you take the bible king james bible um those chapters um, we don't have an original of that. We don't have anything from the earliest texts we have are from at least 50 years after it was written. More, most of them are 100 to 200 years later. And they're copies of copies of copies. And we have little fragments of it. There are about 2,000 of them, I guess. I don't know how many there are now. But there are, I understand that there are more differences among those fragments than there are words in the New Testament. right? And what you see is, you know, like, some monk sitting there copying a manuscript saying, what, what, what kind of a stupid idea is that? That's wrong. He doesn't, you know, that I'm not going to copy that. And they'll cross it out and say, you know, now I'm going to write the truth. So it's yeah. re- the idea that there is a new Testament. Um, you have to believe putting aside translation issues and, and interpretation issues and stuff like that. Um, that would be pretty worrisome to me. Even yeah. if I believed that, that, you know, this Christian story was basically true somehow, I'd still have big problems with what the canonical texts even are. Translation yeah. is a big issue. I, I used to be so intellectually modest that I would talk to anybody. I would go to the airport early so that I could talk to the uh, Hare Krishna people, you know, 30 years ago. I used to hang around at the airport because oh. I knew they were going to stop me and I'd have to talk to them. Otherwise, I'd be closed-minded. And I let Jehovah's Witnesses into my house and we talked about this stuff a little bit. Um, so they give me a, a, a passage from the Bible, um, from the Old Testament. They say, here's your own Bible, Jew. You know, you're a Jew, so we're going to use your Bible. It says right here in Isaiah, a virgin will conceive and bear a son and call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel's Hebrew for God is with us. So there you go. I mean long before Jesus was born. There's a prediction that Jesus was born. And I say, well, let me just get down my Bible in Hebrew, okay? 
on my Old Testament Hebrew. Well, let's see, the word used here is Alma, which means young woman. Um, right. You've translated, you know, King James or whoever it is who translated for King James, um, translated that as virgin. But that's because they knew the Christian story, right? I don't know if you've looked at a Jewish Bible, a Protestant Bible, a Catholic Bible. Yeah, I, th I think that one... I was listening to um, a lecture. I think that one particular is because the uh, the Greek Old Testament that they had at the time they were writing the New Testament had it translated wrong. So it, it shows that they were copying it out of the Greek. Uh, old, but then when you uh -huh. go back to like the the Hebrew in the Caves of Qumran text or whatever, um, it's it's the different. I think I'm not Hebrew and Arabic, I guess Aramaic, I guess yeah. You have more questioners, and um, yeah, there's there's one question just from um, that might be a good one to close on. Um, my friend um, Millen, who's just been accepted to Oxford to study philosophy, um, great, and he's Wonderful saying, to study. Yeah, he's he's saying, what what advice would Don give to a soon to be philosophy undergrad? Um, so he's going to be he's going to be an undergraduate at, at Oxford, yeah, study yeah. philosophy, yeah. Um, Oh, I don't know. You know, it, I, I guess I'd say something like this. Look, um, when I went to philosophy grad school, there were three kinds of people there, putting myself aside. There are three kinds of people among my classmates. There are people who worked really, really hard, maybe weren't, you know, quite as brilliant as some of the others. There are people who were really brilliant, didn't work very hard. The only ones who made it are the people who worked really hard and were pretty talented in the first place, right? So I would say, I don't care how much talent you've got. You're going to have to work your ass off if you want to be successful in this. That means reading, means keeping an open mind, means listening to your professors, taking professors who have competing points of view, right? Exposing yourself to that kind of argument. And, and you can do it all at Oxford. Um, there's some really cool stuff, you know, some really great people there and uh, the best places in the world to do philosophy. So my first, the first thing I'd say is, you're, you know, great, you've done well, lucky you, you're going to have a blast. One of my, one of the best experiences I've had is, was lecturing at Oxford. It's like, there I am at Hogwarts, you know, sending my kids home t-shirts that say, or sweatshirts that say, founded whenever it was. 15 something, yeah, or something. Yeah. yeah, something crazy, yeah. Ridiculously older than anything non-native in my country, you know, period. No buildings older than that old nothing. Yeah, yeah. awesome. Well, um, thanks for coming on to do this. And um, I'm sure we'll talk again in future because I meant to have Russ Schaefer-Lando coming on it's in a few months as well. Uh, Russ is a buddy of mine. Um, he's a, he's a dyed-in-the-wall realist. He's an intuitionist. And he works with my colleague Terence Cuneo a lot. They, write, they, they have many projects together. Um, Russ made the argument, by the way, he's one of the people who popularized the argument that um, the argument from disagreement proves too much because it would also, if correct, prove that there are no answers to philosophical questions. And if you remember what I said about that is we have independent reason for thinking there are answers to some questions. In other cases, we don't. So the question is, what's the best explanation for the disagreement? By the way, um, when we talked about disagreement, I talked about the kinds of disagreement that shouldn't bother a realist. I argued in 1998 in a paper on moral disagreement that um, most of those explanations, most of those they're now called um, defusing explanations of moral disagreement, don't apply to disagreement among philosophers, right? Um, it's very unlikely that Kantians and utilitarians have vastly different views about the non-evaluative facts. 
or that one side is biased in their own favor and the other side isn't, or that they're talking about different circumstances to which the same principles give different, you know, generate different prescriptions. That's not happening. Um, it looks like straight out moral disagreement among people who ought to know if anybody knows. And even there, we get an awful lot. There are answers to that. Um, but I guess, but there are also people who are making, Brian Leiter, somebody, for example, who's taken this argument and really run with it a lot. Um, he'd be a fun person to talk to too, by the way. Who was who that? Sorry, I didn't catch the... Brian Leiter, he's the guy who, um, he's a very controversial figure. He created the Philosophical Gourmet Report back when we were both in graduate school. He's a Nietzsche scholar. He's a philosopher of law and he does meta-ethics. Quite a guy. Okay, also, yeah, um, I've noted and that. He, he, and he's guaranteed to say things that will um, make people mad because <laughs> he, he just doesn't filter it. He just says what he thinks is true and he gives his arguments. And um, sometimes I buy the arguments, sometimes I don't, but they're always fun. Awesome. Well, I'm going to end the live stream there anyway. Um, Thanks. Ooh, let's...